Welcome to our third remote podcast as we adapt to life in a pandemic. And this morning, we continue in our Heart of the Kingdom message series, which links Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with the heart of the one who preached it. The Sermon on the Mount seems dangerous to some because it challenges the underlying assumptions on which modern society is built. And the Sermon on the Mount replaces the status quo, which someone said is Latin for the mess we're in, with a vision of life in the kingdom of God. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus laid the foundation for the rest of his sermon. Uh, It's those who hold space for God, the poor in spirit and pure in heart, who will receive the kingdom of heaven. The meek, the humble in heart, are salt and light, influencing a tasteless and dark culture with kingdom righteousness. This is the Christian counterculture. Jesus revealed the order to life only God can establish, reflecting his kingdom. And we're in the midst of the most disordered moment in our history. A novel coronavirus has upended our lives, our financial and societal systems, uh, but most significantly, the health of those infected with COVID-19. The harsh reality is that this has only begun. Our enduring hope is that the God of order continues his work in our world and in our hearts. God is a God of perfect order. Genesis 1 and 2 reveals the order that is evident as God created the earth, an order that scientists since have discovered. Sir Isaac Newton, who discovered the theory of gravity, was called the father of calculus and became deeply assured that only a divine God could create a universe of such immense capacity, yet one that ran with such precision. Albert Einstein He said this, scientists were rated as great heretics by the church, but they were truly religious because of their faith in the orderliness of the universe. And these brilliant minds found a systematic arrangement in the universe that followed an orderly pattern and plan. The book of Leviticus from the Old Testament, which most of us find rather tedious to read, it reflects God's order in the instructions on ritual washings and how to deal with health disorders, the God of order, truthfulness, purity, reverence, and healing shine through. Some have criticized the health protocols around the coronavirus as an attack on individual freedom, but without order, there's no liberty for anyone. Order is heaven's first law on which beauty and our salvation depends. And this is why the psalmist in Psalm 119, 133 states, order or or frame, direct, order my steps according to your word. The order of our lives reflects the kingdom of God. Any disorder in our lives reflects the brokenness evident in the kingdom of this world. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 48, Jesus moves through scenes common to our lives and sets them straight patterned after life in the kingdom of God. First of all, Jesus addresses creating order in marriage. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus is teaching was actually good news for, for a particularly weak and exposed segment of Jewish society. At the time, women 
had no rights. Single women unattached from their family's household were particularly exposed, but so were married women. The Old Testament passage to which Jesus refers uh, in verse 31 uh, is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. The thrust of which is that if a, if a man divorces his wife uh, because of something indecent in her, he must give her a certificate of divorce. And if she then becomes another man's wife and is divorced again, the first man cannot marry her. Now, a Jewish male could divorce his wife for a, a vague charge of uncleanness, declining attractiveness, refusing to submit to her husband, an unkept house. And in the most egregious cases, Jewish men would divorce their wives, take up with another woman, and then remarry their first wife. It's in this context that we can understand Jesus's teaching that except for sexual immorality, a man could not divorce his wife. It negated all their subjective reasons for doing so. And this double restriction, the certificate and the prohibition of remarriage, discouraged hasty divorces. And Jesus insists that the law was pointing to the sanctity of marriage as God created it. In practice, uh, this edict was intended to protect women. The exception clause, except for sexual immorality, is related to the one flesh relationship in marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, it says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, these Pharisees asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, uh, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Uh, we can see from this passage why, as much as God hates divorce, that he gave this exception. It was to create order in human affairs. God is a God of order. He, he saw the brokenness in humanity and provided protection for women, in this case, to allow them to sort out their lives. And Jesus' teaching underscores the sanctity of our marriages and the importance of maintaining the one flesh relationship. May those who are married value and serve the person God provided for companionship and support, reflecting Jesus's love for all of us. Going on, Jesus addressed creating order through discourse and the way we communicate with each other. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, the Mosaic law forbade irreverent oaths in the form of the casual use of the Lord's name and hasty vows that became broken vows. Once Yahweh's name was invoked, the vow to which it was attached became a debt that had to be paid to the Lord. Complicated excuses were made 
uh, by judging how binding an oath really was by examining how closely it was related to Yahweh's name. Incredible distinctions proliferated under this approach. Swearing by heaven and earth was not binding, nor was swearing by Jerusalem, though swearing toward Jerusalem was. And such distinctions became controversial and they're widely discussed. Later in Matthew, Jesus returns to this topic with specific examples. In Matthew 23, 16, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides. <clears throat> you say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, what is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Since oaths designed to encourage truthfulness became occasions for clever lies and intellectually dishonest excuses, Jesus abolishes oaths entirely. <clears throat> if one does not swear at all, one does not swear falsely. Jesus insists that whatever a person swears by is related to God in some way, and therefore every oath is implicitly in God's name, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, uh, even if we swear by the hairs of our head, all of these are under God's sway and ownership. A literal translation reflects Jesus's economy of language here. He merely said, yes, yes, no, no. That's it. Just say yes or just say no. And Jesus's purpose is to underscore the importance of this directness and accuracy and truthfulness. His exacting standards are rarely reflected in modern discourse where hyperbole and overly oversimplification are, the, are often the rule. Dr. Anthony <clears throat> Fauci, who I seem to keep referring to in these messages, uh, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a point person on the federal government's response to coronavirus, who has issued dire warnings about the pandemic, has become a folk hero because he's the most believable person in this crisis. He lives by Jesus's edict. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this is just not necessary. A kingdom conduct is not just keeping oaths, but being the kind of people who don't need to take oaths to be believed. And during this stressful time for all of us, we can minister to those around us by saying what we mean and meaning what we say. People's needs are overwhelming. In our desire to help, we may impulsively say that we will pray for a person or check in on them or support them in some way. Uh, these are things we should offer, but we must be ready to do them um, and not to promise it unless we fully intend to. Like Jesus's manner of discourse, let it be yes, yes, or no, no. People don't need any more instability than what we're dealing with right now. And Jesus calls us to be sincere in heart and careful about what we promise. May we share hope in our situation, but not optimism. Optimism doesn't help. We should not try to comfort one another with the wish everything will be fine. Well, this is an expression of denial of what may be required of us in the days ahead. 
Genuine faith calls us not to hide from these possibilities, but to face them with the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Vigilance is an act of compassion, not fear. For some, this will be expressed in faith-filled prayers for healing. For others, it will be expressions of generosity for the needy. We must be the people who never lose hope for human flourishing. The only thing we can be certain of is the character of God, a God of order, and the promises that he makes. Let's share that hope and leave the prognostications to others. Going on, Jesus addresses creating order in conflict. Beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not risk an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. A kingdom conduct is returning good for evil and a blessing for a curse, even if we're poked and slapped first. Kingdom order is not only loving our neighbor, but our enemies as well. It absorbs injustice and overcomes evil with good. Kingdom order flows from a heart that is hungry and thirsty for mercy, peace, justice, and wholeness. The enemy we're dealing with is a virus. And so the only way we can turn the other cheek is to follow the protocols and distance ourselves socially. The challenge is not to take our frustration out on others as they react to the stress of the situation. This is a tense time in different ways for each one of us. For some, it's the threat of infection by a sneaky, sneaky disease. For others, it's the loss of employment and income. For those with young children at home, school closures present unique challenges of restless kids in close quarters. Such a, since a spouse is closest to us, the mounting frustration is often taken out on the ones we love most. And the ones slapping our cheeks and grabbing our shirts are often the ones closest to us. But a kingdom person doesn't respond in kind. We absorb the hostility and begin the peace process to restore order with those we touch, those we love. And this might be the greatest gift we can give each other, to not get drawn into the fear and desperation and instead to create order in the way that we respond to each other. That's what Jesus did. He absorbed the horror and chaos of our sin and he nullified it in his body, sacrificed on the cross in order to create order in our lives. Matthew 16, 24 calls us to the same. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And and whoever loses their life for me will find it. And we do that by turning cheeks and offering cloaks to create order in conflict. We do that by carrying our cross and absorbing and absorbing even the hostility that may be directed toward us in this time. Often, when I counsel couples, we discuss five ways of handling conflict. Yielding, withdrawing, winning, compromising, and seeking solution. Excuse me, seeking resolution. Yielding reflects a high value for the relationship, but it's not personally satisfying. 
Merely giving in leaves remnants of anger and resentment that builds over time. Withdrawal is a destructive reaction that may, it makes us feel better and in some sense protects us, but is hurtful to the relationship. What's wrong? Nothing. Is something wrong? Nothing. And then there's winning, and winning is personally satisfying, but relationally destructive. We feel good in the moment uh, because we've won, unaware of the damage that we've done. Compromise begins a path to where we hope to arrive, which is resolution. And resolution comes when both parties agree on what's in the best interest of the relationship, whether it's with a parent or child or friend or spouse. Resolution is the kingdom ideal. Resolution is where we want to be. Resentment and anger feel good to our flesh, but diminished relationships. Resolution reflects the value of the relationship. It welcomes unity and peace. It's not a painless path, but it reflects order in the kingdom of God. We experience orderly life in the kingdom of heaven, in the chaos of our times. Next, creating order in relationships. In Matthew 5.43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, well, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Those who don't believe in God? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A French existentialist philosopher from the last century, Albert Camus, he made this observation. Suffering is random. And it's the best that can be said about it. <laughs> now, we don't know why one person is infected and never knows it, while another becomes desperately ill or even dies. Oh, we can talk about genetics and immune systems and pre-existing conditions, but this virus still seems random in its effects. However, uh, we do not have a random God. We do not have a God without a purpose and plan. And while both the blameless and guilty get this virus. The Bible says that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And actually, rain falling was a sign of blessing. Uh, it wasn't about a rainy day. Jesus' teaching shows us how God brings order out of disorder. And it's by considering others' needs as more important than our own needs. Jesus' lesson in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that every person is our neighbor. Now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, how should citizens of heaven behave then? And as a church, we asked that question when the seriousness of this crisis hit, before directives came not to gather. During a time like this, a church community fulfills its role through encouragement and support. Uh, a ministry seeks to help people find God in the midst of things. <clears throat> and if we couldn't gather folks, well, then how could we accomplish that? Now, that was Thursday, May 5th, which seems like an eternity ago now. We had everything set for Sunday, March 8th. Um, but what would we do? Well, the first thing we knew was that 
We couldn't serve our self-interest. If gathering spread the virus, we had to find new ways to minister to people. And so we canceled the services for the upcoming Sunday and worked to pivot our ministry. We combined our site teams into one staff, each staff member uh, taking on adapted roles for the new reality. The principle was to act in the best interests of others, uh, not uh, in the interests interest of sustaining the institution. A local church is a local body of Christ. It's the Lord's church. And so the way that we handle situations like this must reflect him. Um, so this was our way of being good neighbors, to not meet. And, and, the, and the reason we broadcast the Sunday morning worship live streams from homes and not from one of our campuses is in solidarity with the shelter-in-place order and the situation that we all find ourselves in now. Individually, we're called to do the same. Um, not fearful self-preservation, not hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizer and food walling up until the virus blows over while observing the health protocols for the COVID-19 virus, instead of worrying about its impact on the economy, we must reach out to neighbors, share what we have, and show genuine interest and concern. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness lead a disturbed life, a life disturbed by the needs of others until they are filled. <clears throat> it's people first. Now, this isn't the first pandemic humanity has faced, and it won't be the last. While Europe fought the plague in the Middle Ages, Martin Luther, a leader of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote this, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order uh, not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, uh, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. In our nation's long involuntary Lent, <laughs> I don't think that on Ash Wednesday we thought that we'd be giving up as many things as we are forced to give up now. Uh, during this time, fear abounds. We should oppose it with all that we have for as long as we can. And that's why it's important for us to gather together, even if it's virtually, <laughs> digitally. Uh, when we come to the end of our strength and lie back, the universe will hold us because the universe is held by a God of order. There's a, there's a wonderful, simple poem by Philip Booth about teaching his daughter to float in the ocean. It concludes this way. As you float now where I held you and let go, Remember when fear cramps your heart, what I told you. Lie gently and wide to the light year stars. Lie back and the sea will hold you. Well, right now, we are trusting in God <laughs> as the universe is the sea that holds us. And right now, in a time when we're constantly looking for heroes and saviors to take all of this away. 
Right now, we need to understand that each one of us is the hero that we all need. Every one of us is in a position to help in this crisis. Every single one of us can contribute to the success of our medical infrastructure. Every single one of us can contribute to reducing the likelihood that we'll face a situation where we have to ration life-saving medical resources. The God of order promises not immediate deliverance, but the hope that suffering and failure are not final and that suffering is not random. It promises that a voice of reassurance can speak out of the silence. It promises that the stillness of a pounding heart can be replaced by the stillness of a wise trust in a God who loves us. Sit with the sadness of this situation. Allow the Lord to replace it with joy, despite the circumstances we're in. Embrace the slowing down and lie back and let a God who loves you create order within you and through you, even if others don't understand our lament. God does. God will restore order in your heart. We'll experience his presence in this time. Uh, may we lift our eyes, may we lift our prayers to him. <laughs> 